0: Hey, everybody. My name is Reed, one of the staff persons here. Welcome to CCF. If you are new or newish, thanks for coming. You are entering into a random Wednesday because the Philippians series, it's over. We finished it last week. And the next two weeks after this one are senior night. Please come for that. It is one of my favorite things about CCF. Uh, Next week, we're going to be hearing from 10 or so of our seniors, people who are graduating and or leaving us. Um, It's sad, but it's good. It's really good. Uh, I can't wait to hear what they have to say. Uh, But for this week, uh, here we are. And we are actually at the end of Lent, almost, for those of you who observe. We kicked off this season with a Wednesday before spring break. We talked about Ash Wednesday. You remember that? Today, Wednesday, is just, you know, the last Wednesday of Lent, but tomorrow is a special day, Uh, and in thinking about what we were going to talk about, I was like, well, Good Friday is Friday, and that seems like the big one, but the thing is, we've had a whole year of Good Friday sermons, basically, because we've been talking about the crucifixion for a whole year, Uh, so I'm going to spare you any more crucifixion talk, and instead, we're going to get a nice, tasty, little Maundy Thursday. You guys... (laughs) You guys know, does anybody like me and you're like, what is Mondy? First of all, have you heard of Mondy Thursday before? Some of you, not all of you, totally okay. I had never heard of Mondy Thursday until, I don't know, sometime into my time at Truman. Because I went to a church where we didn't, I mean, we had, we had Easter and it was like, have a ham on Easter, but you don't really even know what's there until it's like, oh shoot, it's Easter weekend. Monday Thursday. What the heck is Monday Thursday? Does anybody know what Mondy means? What it comes from? It's a funny word. It's a weird word. John, I'm not going to let you answer because you know everything. <laughs> Mondy. Okay, John, tell us. Where does it come from? Uh, it's the Latin the Mandatum is the command. Commandment. That's the Latin word. Uh, and it refers to Jesus, a new command I give to you. Uh, Monty Thursday is about the Last Supper and the feet washing. When Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, he washes their feet and then he says, A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I've loved you guys familiar with this passage a little bit? You know the story of the upper room, the Last Supper? You've seen the picture, I'm sure. Uh, what? You got a painting of it. I'm going to show you one. Um, here is, let's see, what are our titles for this evening? Wow, did I really? Oh, I have a typo on my page, but it's not up there. That's good. Go to Mine just says, go the limits of your love. Go to the limits of your love, or scenes from an upper room, or a Maundy apologetic, or it was a Thursday he descended into the ninth circle of hell. Um, I'm not going to have you stand because it's a little long passage that I'm going to read, but I'm going to turn off this light for a second because it feels more upper room vibes if we have the lights down like this. Excerpts from John 13 and 14. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus rose from supper. When he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured out water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Amen. Upper Room Vibes, over. A conversation. Love, yes, Jesus. You're so right, we will. We're so eager to love. All you need is love, love is all you need. John Lennon has been singing it to us since 1967 and we believe him as well as you. We believe in the power of love, we love love. We love our dogs, we love Indian food, we love the Chiefs, we love Batman, we love our new hokas, we love film, We love it all. We love these things that spark our curiosity and inflame our passion. We love the sense of expansiveness that we feel with them, how they make us feel truly ourselves. Love one another. Oh, we didn't realize you were done talking yet. Sorry to interrupt. Yes, Jesus, we will love one another. And we do. We love our friends and family and boyfriends and girlfriends. We love them and the roles they play in our lives, the joy we experience with them, the ways they make us better people and how they make us truly ourselves. Love one another as I have. Of course, Lord, how could we forget? Not just when it's easy, but when it's costly, like you did. Yes, we will love them when it's hard, quirks and all, even when they can be so frustrating. We will make sacrifices for them like you did. Love one another as I have loved you. Yes, Lord, as you have loved us, your followers and friends. We love our friends and followers as you love them. We love your friends and followers as you love us. We would give anything for them, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, wait, we just said that we do. Did we overlook something? Ah, we know. You must mean the ones that are not our friends, the ones we know and spend our time with. You must mean the marginalized and the oppressed. Yes, 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 Jesus, we do. We do. We love them and the diversity they bring, the ways they challenge us to expand our horizons and enlarge our perspectives. We love sending them money. Remember how we thought compassionately of George Floyd and we spoke out on social media for him? We felt and we posted fiercely for him and we rejoiced in the streets when Derek Chauvin was convicted. May he rot unto ages of ages. Love one another as I have loved you. Wait a second. Jesus, why are you still repeating yourself? Who are you talking about? Certainly you don't mean Judas, I'm not Chauvin. He betrayed you and us. You're Not talking about him too, are you? When I remember the Last Supper, I tend to remember Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I tend to remember how he instituted what we call the Eucharist. And I remember how he said to love one another in other words, on Monday Thursday, I remember uh, how he looked ahead to his own death, which is his love for the world, and how he initiated his disciples, us, into that same way, that they should also love to the death, that we should also love to the death. I think about those things. And I remember uh, sometimes that betrayal is like such a topic of conversation around the table Uh, that it's actually here that Judas begins his betrayal of Jesus. But I don't usually think about these two aspects, about how these two aspects, sacrificial love on the one hand and betrayal on the other, being betrayed, I don't usually think about how they're interwoven together throughout this story. And what I mean is that it usually escapes me that when Jesus washes the disciples' feet— he is washing Judas's feet. And when he breaks the bread and pours out the wine as his body and blood, he breaks it and pours it out for Judas as well as for the others. And so the call to love one another as he has loved is a call to something not only that can be pleasant and soft and quaint, but also to something that is at some times and in some ways actually great and terrible. To love with the same kind of sacrifice as Jesus in a way that feels like a kind of suffering that might just bring us to our death. And to hold that kind of love out freely to the same ones as Jesus did, not just our friends, and family, not just our strangers, not just the oppressed and the marginalized, but to love the betrayers among us, the betrayers of us, because Jesus makes the offer of love to them no less than he does to the ones who stay faithful. Then Maundy Thursday, it just tends to hit like a ton of bricks and there's no escaping it. And it makes me say, along with the disciples, Lord, I do not know the way to where you are going. I don't know how to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't know that I can do that. Like, think about it for a second. Go deep, beyond your idealism, beyond your romanticism, to the ones who have wounded and hurt and really betrayed. And Jesus says, love one another, including them. What I'm saying is uh, that I think we all have our limits. We all reach the border beyond which our love won't go, can't go. And of course we do. Because you think about the person and you think about the pain that comes along with that. And there are times when to love this particular person who has cheated me or abused me or betrayed me is is to put myself at considerable risk. To open yourself up to that. And so from pretty much every angle, it makes no sense that I should do that. Like, love the liar. Okay. Love the miser? Sure. Love the glutton? Yes. But the betrayer? The one whose deception and greed and lust have left this knife in my back and ruined my life? You guys know Dante? Alliguerre, not personally. Maybe some of you know him personally in a dream. Dante, he mapped out and he gave us a guided tour of hell. In the Inferno. You remember this? Has anybody ever read the Inferno? Some of you? You should read it because most of your ideas about hell come from there. Uh, Do you know which folks, he said, go to the ninth deepest innermost circle of hell? And just as a disclaimer, like CCF does not necessarily or officially endorse the views of Dante on hell. But just for illustrative purposes, do you know who's at the deepest bottom level? So at level one, you've got... Virtuous people who weren't Christians. Virtuous non-Christians, they're, they're up at the top. You go down a level, level two, lust. Level three, gluttony. Four, greed, wrath, lust, greed, sloth, pride, gluttony, envy, wrath, right. If you know, you know. <laughs> wrath, level six, heresy. That's, that's level six, there are still three more to go. And all of you all who are like, wait a minute. I thought having the wrong idea about God was the worst thing that you could do. Like believing a false doctrine. That has to be the worst. Nope, not the worst. Not even in the bottom third. Violence. Next one, number seven. Number eight. Fraud. The deepest circle of hell goes to betrayers. And actually in Dante's Inferno, do you know who is like the celebrity pop star in the ninth circle of hell? It's Judas. Is betrayal the worst thing that someone can do? Maybe it is. Have you ever noticed that trust is a prerequisite for betrayal? Like we don't use the word betrayal for strangers. We use it for our friends and our loved ones, the ones that we handed a piece of our lives to, that they then turned around and stepped on. So Dante, he's got a point. And oh, maybe my thought is, if if these ones are the furthest from the love of God in the ninth circle of hell, then why should my love be any nearer to them, these betrayers? The love, the call to love them uh, makes no sense. And yet, as far as I can tell from these scenes and the way that Jesus is with Judas in the Last Supper on Monday Thursday, uh, they are not excluded from the love of God or from the company of those that Jesus calls us to love. Jesus is there sharing the table with Judas, telling us to love not just our strangers and enemies, but also our betrayers. Maundy Thursday is the day when Jesus calls us to go to the limits of our love. How far can you go before your ideals and your romantic ideas fall down and you realize that you actually don't have it in you to go any further, that there really are people in this world that you don't love? Go to that limit, right up to the person that you want to love least or have most negative desire to love, And then when the time comes, step out beyond that. Go beyond that. How can we, Jesus? You're asking us to do an impossible thing, Jesus. You know these people, they really did betray us. They took that part of our lives that we gave to them and they stepped on it. They squashed it. They destroyed it. This is an impossible thing. It's a stupid, senseless thing to love our betrayers who betrayed the love that we gave them at first. How could we give it again? So a big part of Maundy Thursday is feet washing, foot washing. Maybe having our feet washed by Jesus is the first part of it. So Jesus gives his command, right? He was wash the feet. Love one another as I have loved you after he washes his feet, something that we'll be doing at the BSU in two days. Hope you're there. What is the significance of the act of feet washing? Uh, You may have heard something along these lines before, that foot washing is the act of a servant. And you should have heard that because Jesus says that. It's not that it's not that. To kneel and to clean the feet that have just been continuously, constantly exposed to like dirt and grime and literal crap walking around hot desert streets. So to get down, to wash the feet, that's the act of a servant. And I think there is much truth in that, okay? I'm not saying there's not that. But here's a different aspect of it that I thought about. Do you remember that this isn't the first time that someone's feet have been washed in the Gospels? Do you remember how one chapter before this, in John 12, it is Jesus who is getting his feet washed? Mary? Mary? takes her expensive jar of perfume, and she breaks it open, and she washes the feet of Jesus with it. That's right. Jesus had his feet washed before he washed the feet of his disciples. Show your receipts, Jesus. And do you remember why Jesus said that Mary did that? Why she did that to him? To prepare him for burial. To prepare him for being dead. His love is going to take him to his death, and she is getting him ready. And so I wonder when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and in whatever sense he washes our feet, if he is preparing them for the same. It's not just him washing them and like making them clean people. But maybe this is like a form of baptizing them into his death, as we're told about in other parts of the scripture, a baptism into his love. And so maybe we have to understand that when Jesus washes us, he's not just making us clean for the sake of cleanliness so that you can feel better about being clean, but he is preparing us to follow after him in his love, no matter who it might be for, Judas, or what it might cost us, our lives, maybe we could see this washing that he does not only as our salvation, but also as our commissioning. Like maybe he's, if you've heard this before, he's not just your savior, he's your Lord. And you think about commandments and Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? And all of us have our like, oh, works-based salvation, like going off and Jesus is like, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Yes, yes, I hear you. We hear you, Jesus, but (laughs) we can't. And I wonder if Jesus is aware of our limitations, and he knows what it is to be betrayed and still to hold out love for that person, but he knows that it is hard and we are weak. And I wonder then if that's what Jesus is talking about in this same night, at this same table, in the same upper room, when he speaks of the Spirit and of the Helper who would be given to us. Like, what could, we meet, what could we need help for more than to love the ones who betray us? I think we get this help. And sometimes even if we're not consciously asking for it. like, And maybe some of us know something about that. Like, maybe, just hang with me for a second. Like, maybe there are times when you've been confronted with a situation or a person, your Judas... And you are given the choice to either speak harshly or gently. You're given the choice to either bring up the time that they failed or to let it lie. You're given the choice to either act in some way for their harm or for their good. And somehow, in those times, you have actually chosen for their good. But it was because of something, or in a way, somehow, that you you couldn't say or wouldn't even say that it was you that it was your own love, but almost like something compelled you, something from beyond or maybe like deep down within that still somehow wasn't you to choose what you know on your own you wouldn't have chosen. Like does anybody have an ex- You're not bragging. I'm just curious if you have an experience like this. Like maybe there are times when you felt that your actions were more of a conduit than a generator. Like if you know electricity. It's just the thing the love is travel like your actions are the thing the love is traveling along and not the things that are generating that love like you're you're a vessel and not a source. I think this has happened and we hear stories of this. So here's a story uh, that's been told uh, by CNN. Also, there's this podcast that Leah introduced me to called Ear Hustle. It's so good, like the most beautiful humanizing thing you can listen to. Ear Hustle. That's a podcast about life inside San Quentin Prison in San Francisco. Here's a story. April 24th, it's kind of an intense story, so, you know, fair warning. April 24th, 1997, a police officer named Tom Morgan was out on a patrol responding to a call of shots fired somewhere in this area, in this vicinity. And so he's investigating, and he came upon a parked car, and someone was inside. So he turns his lights on, he goes up, and he asks the person inside, there's a young man inside, he asks him to step out, and he searches him, and he discovers that this young man was carrying a gun. And this young man was named Jason Samuel. When Tom found Jason's gun, he said, we got a gun, and Jason ran. Tom ran after him through this neighborhood, and he catches up to him as Jason is trying to enter into a house, force his way into a house, and so there's a fight. There's a struggle that ensued, and as they're fighting, Jason pulled out his own gun, and he put it up to Tom's neck, and he pulled the trigger. The shot, which it wasn't like a bullet. It was more like a bunch of small pellets, like a tiny little shotgun in your hand. Uh, It didn't kill Tom. It immobilized him, uh, but somehow Tom is still conscious. And as he's laying on the ground, he pulled out his gun, and he points it at Jason, and so Jason ran over, and he hit Tom, and he took Tom's gun out of his hands, and he put it up to Tom's head, and he pulled the trigger. And the gun didn't fire, because Jason didn't know how to disengage the safety. But he didn't give up, and two more times... He attempted to kill Tom, gun to the head, as Tom lay there on the ground, unable to get up or do anything. And when it didn't work on the third try, he knocked Tom out, and he ran away. Tom, 39 years old, in critical condition, was rushed to the hospital. And Jason, 17 years old, apprehended later that same night. Tom barely survived, but he did survive but he and his wife, whose name was Christy, they had to endure the trauma of this night for years and years and years to come. Christy was so terrified that she barely left their house ever for 10 years after the shooting. And she would just spend her days lying on the couch, watching TV, or doing nothing at all, never leaving for fear for a decade. Jason was given a 19 years to life sentence. Beginning in 1998, 2016, so this is 18 years later, after he has entered prison, he had his first parole hearing, and Tom attended. Tom came to the hearing, and he brought with him his uniform that he had worn that night, still bloodied, still torn. Because he wanted the board, the parole board, to see what Jason had put him through, and he intended to argue with everything he had that Jason be denied parole and forced to serve the maximum sentence. But before Tom could make his remarks, he had to sit through the hearing, and he heard Jason's story. How Jason grew up poor in a house without a father, and an abusive mother who was addicted to drugs, and how he had to mow lawns just so he could have money to buy groceries for his siblings, and how when his mother lost custody of him at 10 years old, he entered into the foster system before falling into gang life a few years later, And at this hearing, Jason also shared with tears in his eyes about how since he had been in prison, there was a retired police officer who had visited him. And he told the police officer how he had shot and tried to kill this other police officer, but that retired officer still treated him like a human being after hearing this story, and he was weeping because of the compassion that he was shown. And Tom's feelings in that parole hearing began to change. And by the end of the hearing... He wasn't so sure uh, that the best thing was to deny Jason parole. Tom said, I remember after hearing, thinking, wow, you know, if somebody that he doesn't even know could have that kind of emotional impact on him, what if I were to do the same thing? What if I were to speak with him and agree to talk with him? And so Tom decided to follow something, something that happened in him, that surprised him, something that compelled him towards reaching out, towards compassion. So at that hearing, Jason was denied parole, but Tom told him, he said, I wanna come visit you. And so Tom started to visit his would-be murderer, and as time passed, Tom also then started to tell the commissioners that he wanted to do whatever he could to help Jason get out of prison. He wanted him released. This man who so many years earlier had tried repeatedly to take his life when he was helpless. And as Jason experienced this in prison, he started to think more about Tom and started to feel deep remorse over what he had done. And so over the next couple of years, Jason's parole would be denied several more times, but Tom still kept going to meet with him and getting to know him and having a relationship with him, and Christy would never come because she hated Jason. And because in her mind, he had taken more from her even than he had from Tom. And then finally, they were doing work through a restorative justice project and Christy agreed to go. Her, she whose life had been so ruined by what Jason did to Tom, she decided to go visit. At the visit, She didn't go in to the visitor's room. She was unsure if she even wanted to really talk to him or see him. She just wanted to be there. And she watched through monitors, a conversation that Tom and Jason were having. And after seeing them talk, she said that she wanted to go and talk to him. And Tom said this. He said, I'll never, ever forget that moment. If I live to be a 1,000 years old, I'll never see a moment of more perfect grace than her. The courage and bravery it took for her to say, I've suffered all of this time under this, but I still want to go out and meet this man. And Jason had this to say when she entered into that room and he first met her. He said, I was prepared for her to slap me, to hit me, to let her get her frustrations out on me. But I was shocked and surprised that instead of a hit or a slap, she wanted to embrace me. They hugged. And Jason said, that was the best moment of the whole dialogue right there. And it was very special for me because this woman hated me so much. And I didn't how- know how to to explain in words that that wasn't me that harmed her husband that way. And she hugged me and I knew that she had forgiven me wholeheartedly and that was special for me and it's still special for me. And at the final parole hearing, in which Jason was finally found suitable to enter back into society, Christy was there to advocate for him. She was there saying, let him out. And now that he is out, Tom and Christy, they text with Jason every single day and they go bowling, and they cook together, and they bake together, and the man who tried to kill Tom is now a part of his family. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, not just for your friends, but for your Judases and your Jasons, When Jesus calls and the Spirit pushes us to love the ones we least want to love, we have to respond because this is the only way that anyone's anyone knows. Do you know the word apologetics? Does anybody know this word? Do you have some really smart friends who are into apologetics? It means uh, a rational defense, an explanation for the faith. It's a debate. It's an argument for why God is real. Have you ever tried to explain God to someone who didn't believe in God in order to convince them? And have you ever made an argument? And have you ever even been right with your argument? And then still ended up feeling that like this just wasn't actually connecting? And it, and it wasn't as convincing for them as it was for you? And you feel this like disconnect, this cognitive dissonance of like, oh, I know that I just I was explaining it. There's, there's no way to explain it enough to get what you're wanting to get, because it's not by our arguments and our explanations that Jesus says that all people know we are disciples. That's not how then people know, therefore, the God that we follow. It's fine to have arguments and explanations, okay? Kobe, can you hear me? But How can an argument or an explanation or an apologetic compare with a story like this, like Tom and Christy and Jason? How can any explanation replace washing the feet of the one who has betrayed you, of the one who is betraying you? The existence of God may be rational, but the love of God is not. And so our greatest apologetic is love. And so this Maundy Thursday, that's the question that we ask and that we are asked. Who do you see when you go to the limit of your love? As far as your own love can carry you, who's still standing there on the other side? Who is God calling you to love that is beyond the limits of your love? I'm going to give us a second to think about that. And so now, may we have, have the eyes to see ourselves, to see ourselves as not only friends and followers of Jesus, but as his betrayers as well. And may we be filled with the Spirit, with his Spirit, to love stranger, friend, enemy, worst enemy. And may we have the trust to embrace the love of God as it fully is, beyond the limits of our own. And may all know him by our love, which is his love in us. Here we are, Lord. Not all of us have someone who has tried to kill us. Maybe some of us do. Maybe not even all of us feel as we have been feel as though we've been deeply betrayed. And I thank you for that. Before all of us you put people to love. Not as the world loves, but as you love, Jesus. Spirit, help us. Helper, help us. Help us to to will and to act for their good. Spirit, your fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, Lord, all of those in abundance toward the ones even who betray us. And Lord, may the world know, not just because of our talk, but Lord, may the world know and see through our love, which is your love. Amen.